Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. On this episode of Trial and Medical Error, I talk with attorney Ben Gideon from Maine, who is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, has a ton of amazing verdicts, and is one of the best medical malpractice trial lawyers in the country today. And Ben is also the co-host of the Elevate podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts as a trial lawyer. And if you haven't listened to it before, you should definitely go check it out. Ben and I talk about all things malpractice, focus groups, big data, how to look for the system failure in all of your medical malpractice cases, because that is the main way to find your way to victory. It's hard to win those individual cases if you're just trying to show error in judgment. Ben also talks about an interesting way to frame an individual doctor case as a system failure. So you're not going to want to miss out on this. You'll learn a lot. And with no further ado, here's Ben Gideon. Ben, I'm super psyched to have you on my little podcast for a number of different reasons. But one of them is because I owe you an apology. And uh, my apology, Uh yeah, I know. So the apology is as follows. I was at TLU in New York back in, uh, when was that, September, October, And, uh, you know, they have it set up that you can kind of bumble around to different rooms and so forth. And, you know, as a MedMal practitioner, I just happened to see that there was something about MedMal in a room, you know, went in there and it was you and uh, and Dr. Burroughs giving great presentations on system failures and so forth. But I did not connect because I'd been listening to the Elevate, your Elevate podcast for some time, but did not ever like put a face or anything to it. So I'm sitting there watching you and I have a tendency to be a bit of a trial know-it-all. And I just left there feeling like the biggest ass because you gave your closing for that uh, prostate cancer case that, uh, that you wound up, I guess, settling, which is awesome. But you had planned to, to give this closing and you gave this great closing to the group. And you did that argument about, imagine if you know, somebody came in and said, uh, you know, my client, how much money would you, you know, take for all this horror to happen to you and so forth. And, and that's like one of my favorite arguments. And I afterwards so, uh, you know, humbly pulled you aside to give you tips on, you know, a better way to do it because I've given it so many times and, you know, I'm sitting there like, oh, you know, that was a great closing and I, I bet he's going to be even better now that I've given him some advice. And then I leave and I'm, I'm looking at the thing and I'm like, Ben Gideon. I was like, oh, I know that name. And I'm like, oh, and then I started reading about you and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like giving you you advice and tips on how to do a better closing. So I just wanted to say sorry because um, I did have oh my, my God. My heart was in the right place, but uh, I, you know, I think I was just a little got a little big for my britches there. So anyway, no, no, not at all. I mean, I don't think if we ever get to the point where we're above receiving advice, we should hang up and do something else for a living. I think the whole premise of probably your podcast and mine is that we all need advice on a regular basis, and we all need to continually reevaluate what we do and try to find ways to do it better. So I appreciate that. I remember meeting you there. You were sitting, I don't know, two or three rows back, kind of to the middle left. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was glad I had that opportunity to give the closing because I never got to give it in the real trials. So that was a real disappointment, actually. Do you usually, was that a consequence of you trying that case with your associate? I know he did the opening do you usually have your closing put together before, or was that just kind of came together and it was an opportunity at TLU for you to give it like that? Are you usually that far along prepared before your MedMal trials? I wish I was, but I typically am not. However, I'm trying to move more in that direction. I, I used to always do all aspects of the trial myself, including the opening and the, and the closing. And more recently, I've started to outsource the opening to the second chairperson at whatever trial I'm doing because I work closely with them to try to hone the opening and to get it into the shape that I want it. But I actually think it's nice to allow somebody else to have a voice in the courtroom. And the jury often, I think, appreciates that. But that frees me up for more time to kind of focus on the closing. And then 
one of the things we've moved toward is really trying to mesh the opening together with the closing, which is hard to do if you don't have a good sense for what you're going to say in closing. So we like to present an opening that uh, sort of foreshadows the themes that we're going to return to in the closing. So when we look at the case as a whole, there's kind of one cohesive message. Now, the reality, as you know from trying plenty of cases yourself, is that even if you have a closing sort of planned, or at least the outlines of it, it's going to change considerably to reflect the evidence as it actually came in and, and the unexpected events, uh, hopefully, which broke your way at trial. And the closing I would have given in that case would have been somewhat different than the one, obviously, that I had planned to give prior to the start of trial. I think it sets you up in a way and forces you to, to think through how you're planning to try the case in a way that's really useful in, in preparation. It makes the opening better, and it just it kind of frames all of the witness examinations and the themes you're going to present, I think, a way that's really helpful. It's really interesting. I, I mean, I certainly try to, in opening, under-promise and hopefully over-deliver and so that nobody can say in closing that I didn't prove at least what I said I would in opening. But I don't can't say I've thought to go that far as really trying to, like you said, mesh the two. So I have a trial coming up in uh, in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to try to apply it there. So you've tried, no doubt, tons of cases. Did you start out trying them solo and then got into the team approach, or have you always done uh, more of a you know collaborative trial process? No, I, I started probably like most trial lawyers doing them solo. I never did cases where I didn't have somebody helping me. I always had a paralegal or a, an assistant in the courtroom to help me with exhibits and things like that. But really until probably the last I don't know, eight years or so of my practice, I would try every case alone without another lawyer. But I was trying cases, at least early on in my career, that probably didn't justify a second attorney. I mean, they were slip and falls. They were car accidents. They were two-party torts that were you know, lower value and relatively simple to put on, maybe three or four days. I tried a lot of cases like that which I think is helpful in terms of honing your skills and getting reps, so to speak. And you know, force, and doing it all your, on your own forces you to learn all aspects of the trial from the opening to the closing and all the directs and crosses and everything from preparing jury instructions to voir dire and everything in between. So I, I definitely think that's a, a useful way to learn. And I do worry about like, some of our associates who start out working on these large med mal cases and having kind of just discrete roles in trial and whether they're going to learn the full range of skills necessary. But I do think it can be, it can be learned either way, I think. Well, I think that last dynamic faced the same thing. We, uh, you know, my partner Greg and I have two phenomenal associates and you can just tell that they had the ability to become tremendous trial lawyers. But unlike me at the, the firm I started with was, uh, it was, sort of a circus. And so I could just grab any little tiny crazy case and go get my teeth kicked in without much consequence, but just try case over case over case. And uh, we you know, are fortunate to have a pretty much better inventory than my firm that I first started out did. And so, yeah, there's that dilemma of how do you get them exposure and trial experience when the stakes of the cases are a lot higher. But it's also funny, I think that people get spoiled because I started out with like the junkiest of the junk cases to try. And here, you know, that like I'll, I'll give them a case that I would have been salivating over as a as a young lawyer to try when I was, uh, you know, and they're kind of looking at it like, well, I don't know if this is a very good case, you know, like, well, <laughs> that's why we're going to go try it and why you're going to go try it. But yeah, it's kind of a weird dynamic to figure out how to get them as much trial exposure as possible, but something continuing to to try to work on. So Ben, one of the, there, there's like a million things I want to ask you, but you have just one of my absolute favorite podcasts, the Elevate podcast I've been listening to forever. I know Alan Tittle, who you, you recently interviewed and, and was awesome to hear him on there. And uh, you've had so many great guests. And one of the things I was curious about was, and it's to the point you mentioned earlier, that you can learn so much just from talking with and hearing how other people approach their trials. You've had just, I mean, literally 
the best of the best trial lawyers on. And with that, is there anything that like sticks out with you in particular that you've, I don't know, taken away and internalized that has uh, you know, really benefited your practice or the way you look at trying cases? Yeah, it's such a great question. And one reason I started the podcast was as an opportunity to learn. And I'm learning along with the listeners in each episode and having this opportunity to interact with some of my real heroes, mentors, people in the bar that I respect enormously and have had incredible trial success. I think we're up to about 73 episodes now. And you mentioned that you might ask me this before this morning, so I gave it a little bit of of thought. I guess one of the things that I've always been really amazed by is the wide range of difference in the way people that have been enormously successful as trial lawyers approach trials and, and the craft, and that the takeaway from that is that there is no one formula. There are people that are master tacticians. There are people that have that focus a lot of time on technique and like give incredible thought to every word choice, every vocabulary uh, decision they make. And then there's lawyers who, I don't want to say wing it, but are much more improvisational that their approach is to use very few cues, very uh, no notes. They'd like to be unscripted because that's an extension of their natural personalities. So I feel like overall, the biggest takeaway for me is that trying to find your authentic self and the voice that's really true to you works best for each individual person. One of the challenges I think that we have as trial lawyers is that at least early on, we want to model our behavior or our approach on others that have been successful and you run the risk of losing your authentic voice. And I feel like one of the things, the journey of what we do is to find yourself in a way. I mean, for me, that was certainly part of my journey in that I read books, I followed approaches. Some of them were felt natural and good to me. Some of them ultimately didn't, and I had to abandon them. But part of your ability to follow your own authentic voice is to develop the confidence in yourself. And so to me, that's a big picture takeaway. Now, maybe that doesn't get down into the you know, foundational uh, elements enough to be helpful, but I do think it's something to keep in mind. I kind of made a, a mental list of things that I think are some kind of universal themes that do seem to run through lawyers that have been successful. So of course, everyone has their own variation and their own personal differences. But I think one thing that is universally true of all really successful trial lawyers is that they have an ability, either through experience or just having a mind that is open enough to think critically about the issues in their case, to identify what the real issue is going to be for decision-making that's going to be sort of that tipping point, that fulcrum that is going to decide the case one way or the other. Because every case has about a thousand different issues in it. But at the end of the day, only a couple of them ever matter. But figuring out which are those couple issues that are going to matter, that's the whole ballgame. And I think a lot of lawyers lose sort of the forest through the trees where they are so focused on a laundry list of issues that they miss the big picture. But the best trial lawyers are the ones they can, first of all, spot the big picture. And second of all, they can figure out a strategy to use that to tip the case to their side. How do you go about doing that? How do you go about, you know, we both do predominantly medical malpractice. And certainly in those cases, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me that I'm looking at a case and I could see that I could make the central issue. There's a bunch of different things that I could make focus on. And, and literally some of the issues you could look at two different ways to potentially play it. What do you do as far as how you break that down and get to the core issue, the essence of the case that the jury's going to be you know, most compelled by? I mean, great question. And this is the thing we all struggle with, I think, the most. My approach is that, first of all, I like to approach cases with a, a healthy amount of curiosity. 
That's the way I like to think of it. I don't, the more assumptions you make from the outset, the more you are locked into a specific narrative or approach to the case, the less flexibility you have to see the real case. And I think that's a trap we fall into a lot as lawyers. And then we start to, you know, we're often critical of the doctors or the medical folks for what we call confirmation bias, which is that they come up with a kind of a, a just gestalt, you know, diagnosis or view of a patient. And then every decision they make after that kind of flows from that initial conclusion they reached off. And many times it's wrong, especially in the cases we handle, right? Those initial assumptions can be based on lots of things like the patient's demographic background, their appearance, you know, their weight, their medical history, whatever. But often there's that mistake or misjudgment, and then that triggers a whole cascade of misjudgments and miscalculations where no one second guesses and thinks critically about the issues. I don't want to fall into that same trap myself as a lawyer. I feel like that is a trap we do fall into, especially doing MedMau all the time. And you kind of lock into, okay, this is my theory of the case, or this is what I believe happened. And then every fact, every deposition, you're trying to make it fit. But And what happens is it starts to not fit, but you keep your initial theory or model for the case. And that's where things go off the tracks for us. Number one is you just have to keep that healthy curiosity and open mind and be willing to reevaluate regularly in these cases. And a lot, a lot of times, the thing you find is much more powerful than what your initial assumption was because you let your you know, mind go there, which you would have missed it if you didn't, if you were just locked into something. I mean, a, a recent podcast episode, I don't know if you listened to it, the... Um, it was Briggs Bedigian and his partner, uh, John Stefanuka. Yeah, that but, uh, 100 and 180 out in Philadelphia birth injury case. That was a great episode. Right. And they had that one case where the issue had to do with um, that they litigated the trial on the theory that the doctor jumped abruptly to a conclusion that the mom had suffered from a placental abruption. And then they delivered the baby. At, I think it was 24 weeks very premature. And that, and of course, when you're 24 weeks, you're very uh, susceptible to many medical problems. And this baby had those and then went, went on to have a severe brain injury, as I understand it. And so their theory in the case ended up being that the doctors wrongly overreacted and assumed that there was a placental abruption, even though that hadn't occurred and there wasn't adequate data or evidence to base that uh, conclusion on. And there was a young doctor who was kind of probably over his head and so forth. And this is just based on how they explained it. I wasn't there, but that's a very creative way to approach a case because the standard approach would be, of course, most birth injury cases involving a placental abruption is that there were signs of placental abruption and they didn't move rapidly enough for to emergency C-section and there was a delay in the birth and delivery and that caused an injury. They literally litigated and tried the opposite case to that. Now, how many lawyers would have seen that and thought critically enough about the circumstances of it to have developed that theory to, to begin with? But just a good example, and I think we see a lot of that over the course of the podcast where people have presented cases where if that person had walked into your office with a set of facts, you'd question whether that's a case you would have even taken, or most lawyers would take the case. But then by the time they try it and they explain it, it seems so obvious and so powerful. But it's the trick of doing med mouse, of course, that's not how they arrive at your door, right? <laughs> Well, right. And I think that one of the traps that can be created, and I want to run an idea by you in a second that relates to this, but I mean, literally that confirmation bias trap, I find oftentimes starts when the potential client walks in the door and they have a very view of like, here's where the big mistake was and why this happened. And that a lot of times can start to set you down that path. And then later you realize, oh, wait a second, there's this whole other aspect that either preceded that or had not, you know, that was a totally different thing that they just didn't even realize was part of this. That's actually the core 
issue. And I think that, yeah, the confirmation bias of the cases that we work up and try is a huge problem that, you know, I tried a case, uh, a MedMal, and I lost it in May. And it was a really painful one because I really, from Jump Street, got very personally tied into the case. I was extremely fond of the client. And um, I think I just kind of got wedded to their story to the exclusion of a lot of other aspects of the case. I think it was an overall difficult case, generally speaking. But one thing that I, but it made me think afterwards, you know, when we lost, you know, where I could have done things differently. And I looked back at some other cases where we've had some good outcomes. And um, there's been several instances where I got involved in the case late. Uh, And I find that by doing that, obviously there's some drawbacks in that you don't know, at least initially, the details, the deposition, uh, minutia, maybe as well as the person that's been living with that case. But when you come in with that completely fresh perspective just before trial, I find that a lot of times I see things much more clearly and I'm also way more able to look at that multitude of theories of why this happened and how it could have been prevented and what's going to be most compelling to a jury And so I've just been kind of wrestling with that, like within my firm, should we be creating our system more where one of the attorneys, like, because we're always trying these cases together, then should one of those attorneys be, generally speaking, coming in kind of late? You know, one person does all the legwork, works it up, and then you bring in that other person because they're going to have that kind of unique perspective. They're going to be able to put the person in their place and say, hey, I think you might be going down a path that's not necessarily the winning path. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've been pulled into cases late and seen it with those fresh eyes before, right? A hundred percent. And it it is very liberating to come into a case late because you don't take responsibility for any of the problems that predated your involvement. You can be a hero if the thing's gone off the tracks and then you can write it back in the right direction. And you're also not, as you pointed out, you're not uh, locked into a lot of, uh, predispositions or assumptions that have been made up to that date. And you can really, uh, you know, rethink everything. I do think we really try to rethink every case before trial, even if we've been involved in it throughout the course of its history. And honestly, I think it's also a, a really great opportunity to change focus in a way that is not going to be predictable to the defense. I do think that's another common theme that we've heard throughout the podcast, that when you get to trial, you really want to present a case that is not the one you've necessarily telegraphed throughout discovery. And I think it could be done either way. At the end of the day, if you're going to be involved in the pretrial discovery, though, you have to have the ability to approach it with that open mind and to think critically and have that sense of, you know, curiosity about the issues and not to just get yourself tied into that confirmation bias, which is very hard to do. That's why confirmation bias is such a powerful thing. But I think once you're aware of it and you're recognizing it as a problem and seeking to overcome that, there's a way to do that. You know, it's also just hard. Like the issues in the case that tend to be those tipping point issues in med mal cases that are going to make or break your case are also usually the hard issues, right? They're not the easy issues that everybody agrees with or that there's not any dispute about. They're the hard issues. And again, I think as lawyers, many lawyers want to avoid confronting the hard issues and the difficult parts of their own cases, which is a formula for failure. And not just in law, but in any aspect of life. And so I think getting that, building that mental, you know, that muscle that allows you to acknowledge the hard issues and then confront them in a very real way and direct way is a critical part of what we do. If you're not going to do that, you probably shouldn't be doing medical malpractice cases. I agree 100%. And and I can literally think in a lot of my cases, I feel like you can almost think and remember the difficult issue that you didn't want to, and it makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable just thinking about some of the things that I, it's like, I really wish that wasn't in this case right now. And and maybe the jury, uh, they won't give it much you know, focus. And I, I want to talk to you about this in a second, but I know you've gotten more and more into big data studies lately. Do you guys run your own qualitative, like smaller group focus groups on your cases? 
Yeah. So, I mean, we've been doing small focus group work for years. Initially, pre-pandemic, we we always did them in person. But during pandemic and post-pandemic, we do them all by Zoom, which I do think is less costly and more. it can be more efficient and can allow broader participation. It's actually worked pretty well for us. Our standard approach is that we do multiple qualitative focus groups before we submit our big data study because we want to iron out the kinks and we want to issue spot and try to make sure we're maximizing the money we spend on the big data because that's very expensive. We don't want to miss major issues, you know, spend 30 grand on a big data study. So we'll do multiple focus groups before that, hone our presentations for both sides and then do the big data. And then we would post big data if there are more kind of focused issues, we might do more additional qualitative studies after that. Do you have any recommended, you know, with the way that you work out the small group focus groups on your cases, getting back to this issue of confirmation bias? Because I find that unfortunately that phenomena bleeds into my focus groups because look, I'm the one that's writing the facts. And even though I try to write them as maybe generally or even handily as possible, I, I still am bringing, you know, my frame my view into it. I mean, do you have a recommended format of focus groups that helps you kind of get sort of all the different ways that the juries, you know, they can kind of cover all those different potential theories and then kind of start to figure out, okay, now let's try to do one here later that's maybe more on this issue we hadn't thought about kind of thing. I mean, one thing I've always liked to do is to write the defense side for the focus group myself and to spend more time and focus on doing that than the plaintiff's side. I might outsource the plaintiff's presentation to one of my associates, but I like to do the defense side and I really lay it on thick. Honestly, I I try to, you know, we try to be a little bit internally competitive about it. I really try to win and I want to present a better defense than what I think any of the defense lawyers in the case would be able to present. I feel like we're uniquely positioned to do that because no one sees the weaknesses and flaws of your own case better than you do. I mean, you're the one sitting there during the deposition, just panicked that they might ask that question that you know is a problem for you, right? And you know where the problems are. So we really try, I try to exploit that. And a lot of times for the first focus group, I'll do the defense statement. I'll have somebody else do the plaintiff statement. You know, maybe it's not as strong as I would like it. But our point is to figure out the problems in the case, not to make ourselves feel good about it. And then we might flip. So I'll hand off the defense statement to the associate. They'll strengthen that up for focus group two. And then I'll like, you know, work on strengthening the plaintiff side. For me, that's worked well because it allows me to to force myself to come to grips with all of the worst problems with the case but doing it in a way that kind of feeds into our competitive juices as trial lawyers to, you know, to write a winning argument. I am always amazed and struck by how easy it is to write a compelling defense, even to a complex med mal case. I mean, it might take me 10 hours to write the plaintiff statement. I can, I can usually write a defense argument in about 60 minutes and it's you know, pretty darn good because we know what the, you know, we know how, what, what defense how those defenses work. And they're kind of, I mean, they are individualized to the case, but there's certain types of defenses that are used in almost every case that are kind of universal defense themes, right? Yeah. And I I think that kind of speaks to something that you've said on the Elevate podcast several times, which I 100% agree with is I think probably one of the, if not the hardest trial to win is a you know, medical malpractice lawsuit against an individual doctor. When you don't necessarily, you can't find that system failure set up. Those are really, really tough cases. And I guess pivoting off of that, and I mean, that sort of speaks to why the defense is so easy to write because there's just these common issues, you know, they're always going to bring up because they resonate with a lot of jurors out there and we're overcoming that big obstacle but just to pivot off into a different direction, why do we do this? Why do we do MedMail? There's all these other you know, areas of practice that we could have gone into that are not, not as hard to win a trial, I think. What is it? What drives you? Why do you do it? 
I mean, I think I do it probably for the same reason you do it, Brendan, because it's hard and it's a challenge and, we're, and we like a challenge. If, I mean, you know, honestly, I'd be happy to never try another slip and fall or two-party uh, red light, green light auto accident case. Even if the damages are big and I love my client, it's just not intellectually or professionally that satisfying for someone who's been doing this for 20 years. Whereas the MedMau cases are incredibly interesting, complex, challenging. And I do think, despite the challenges with them, if you are good at this, you can be financially uh, secure and and accomplish a lot of good for your clients. So, I mean, that's why I do it. I'm assuming anybody else who's chosen to do medical malpractice cases would be doing it probably for all of those reasons, because it's not an easy way to make a living. Yeah, no, I mean, I it isn't. It's a very, you know, and then you deal, I don't know about you, but like my dad's a, a physician and many, many of my friends are doctors. I feel like my whole neighborhood, but for me as a doctor, ironically. You must be popular at the neighborhood <laughs> barbecue. I am in that. Well, I can tell you, wait, let me tell you one quick funny story about this. So uh, we were new to our neighborhood and and my wife was very anxious about the fact that she's looking up all of our neighbors and every single one of them is basically a doctor. And then, you know, MedMal guy shows up. So, but I quickly became friends with tons of them and they're wonderful people and so forth. And I go to this barbecue this one night and there are these neighbors and I'm hanging with my one buddy and it's a, it was a Halloween party. And there was this couple that showed up and they had like a, a cloud. One guy was a cloud and the other was like, a, and, and his wife was like a lightning bolt. And I had a couple of beers and I said, uh, oh, I love your uh, lightning bolt. Can I wear it for a little while? And just being kind of goofy and we're talking and everyone's having a good old time. And then my buddy, who's a urological oncologist, he had had too many. He goes, oh, you know what this guy does? He's a med mal lawyer. And the neighbor with who I had borrowed the lightning is just basically like, what? It like comes over, takes the lightning bolt off, puts it back on. And he and his wife just storm out of the party and stuff like and I, uh, I don't think I've, I'm not sure I've told my wife that because I didn't want to get her to get any more anxious about things. But do you ever struggle at all with that? You know, this sort of persistent public, like, oh, MedMal, you know, like just the BS that we deal with of the, the general public, their thoughts on MedMal lawyers. I mean, does that bug you at all ever? Or are you just like totally fine with it and it just, you know, bounces off of you? So the public perception of lawyers doesn't bother me at all. I don't, you know, I understand that, but it really doesn't concern me because I think that is just based on caricatures that are generally inaccurate of people. And, it, you know, a lot of professions have that. You know, people don't like politicians. People don't like, I don't know what, the, the, the people don't like a lot of people. You know, it's that's common theme in a modern society is whatever, whatever you do, there's plenty of haters. So that doesn't bother me. There is one aspect of this that, no, does bother me because I think if you do this kind of job, having a sense for humanity and basic human dignity and uh, just concern about people is part of who we are. It's part of our DNA or we wouldn't be good at this job and we wouldn't want to do it. And there are times I can recall a couple of specific instances. I, the first MedMal case I tried was against a, a relatively young physician assistant who was working at a rural hospital and Honestly, I just really grew to like him a lot during the case. And I I felt really badly about having to bring the case and, and you know, having to try this case. And I lost that trial. And I remember leaving the courtroom actually feeling like I felt a little bit happy for him. And maybe like in that particular case, justice had been done, that he didn't deserve to be sued. There was another case I recall doing where a lot of times, you know, we end up in weird locations to do depositions. I mean, I don't know oh, yeah. the range of places you've been, but I've been in many, many strange, you know, locations, particularly in hospitals and sure. morgues and <laughs> pathology units and uh, people's homes and basements and, and everywhere. But I remember being in it. A lot of times you'll do depositions maybe in the doctor's office. I was in this office of a general surgeon and throughout the deposition, I was looking at these nice photos of his family and his children, you know, that were all lined up behind him. And again, the humanity and, and the feeling of just caring for people makes you queasy about that a little bit. And I remember thinking, you know, this is really hard. Like, this is this guy's profession. He's devoted his life to 
the healing arts to caring for people. Uh, he's had this one time something didn't go well for him. I'm sure he's really broken up about it. And here he is, like some lawyer who's not spent a single day in a hospital or providing medical care to somebody is there to like rake him over the coals and to second guess and to criticize him. Right. And I can understand why that would not be well received by people. So, I, I mean, uh, to a large extent, my approach to that is to try to learn some humility, to not go in there and to try to be a real jerk to people, to try to be respectful, even though maybe something went wrong in a particular case where they screwed up, but that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It's not necessarily a referendum or a reflection of their, their life. It's just a, a single case. And we have a system where unfortunately or fortunately for victims who have been harmed, you have to run the gauntlet of this process in order to get compensation. And I think our clients are deserving of that. And ultimately it's a and I think the doctors recognize this. The, the good doctors recognize this, I think, that this is a part of the process that people who have been wrong deserve a recovery. And there's insurance generally in place for that. And that when they're deserving, they should have access to that and that they need lawyers. And honestly, I think they respect when you're a competent lawyer and you're coming in, you're asking, you've done the homework, you understand the medical issues, you've read the articles. You've taken an interest in them as a person, you know, maybe read their CVs, read some of their publications. And there's times I get through like deposing the defense expert or, or the defendant. And I feel like, no, we've had a really good, like substantive discussion and they really respect that. Right. And the questions you're raising are thought provoking and they give you credit yeah. for, you know, that depth of having thought through it to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they've devoted their careers to this and they're happy that you've invested the time to learn about it and you're curious about it, not just trying to like get sound bites that are kind of bullshit or distort testimony out of context, but you're genuinely curious. Why did this happen this way? Yeah. You know, what do you think about this? Might not be the way you would examine them in a courtroom, but uh, in a deposition, it can be effective in my view. But I've actually really been thinking a lot about this lately and I have a MedMal uh, that I'm going to be trying with my partner starting January 8th, and it's against an individual provider. And um, I've just really been thinking a lot about my approach to the case and trying to to really kind of you know go back to your point earlier about the importance of authentic self and so forth, and trying to think about we're bringing this lawsuit against this doctor. We're saying that you know he made a big error in this particular case, but getting comfortable with, to the point you said, you know, this is not a referendum of him as a person, as a human being, as a doctor. You know, this is like anything. We're saying that under this particular circumstance, he just was not as careful as he should have been. And our client paid a significant price for that. And that is what this case is about and nothing more. And also just getting that mindset too of me to the point you said about not going in there, not being a jerk, because I find sometimes I just get, I'm so kind of ramped up in the case, my natural kind of fired up personality is overbearing and that that's never going to be a good look. The jury typically is not going to appreciate that, except in rare circumstances, if you're, you know, firing brimstone in there, so... I'm excited to go. Yeah, ahead. and you you had posed the question in the email to me about uh, how do you deal with a case where you have an individual doctor but not a system failure case, and so I mean I we could get into details of a particular case, but I do think you can almost always identify a larger issue beyond an individual doctor's quote unquote mistake or error of judgment. I really think generally you have to. It's very hard to win a case where the argument is mistakes happen and this doctor, everything is perfect, but they just made it, you know, an individual and innocent mistake. I do think you just really have a hard time winning that with that framework of a, of a malpractice case. And that's why plaintiffs lose most malpractice cases. But I think part of thinking about, and this is something that's taken me many years to understand that the system failure framework is broad. It is not limited only to the medical system that under 
lies the individual act of negligence or or the injury. It adds broader and includes the entire civil justice system and the approach to the litigation and trial itself. And generally, and the experts they've hired, their attorneys, their tactics in the courtroom or in litigation. And now, ideally, you have system failures that affect the delivery of the medical services. And you almost always do if you bring the lens out far enough. And then you can make the doctor as sort of a victim of a a broken system. But if you don't have that, then... So the system failure, number one system failure is this is an example of a broken medical system. And the system's broken because in America, and this is, you know, Dr. Burroughs did a whole presentation on this at the TLU, but it's because our system is driven by profit motive, largely from insurance companies, and therefore it incentivizes doctors to spend little time to not provide preventative care, but to only treat in injury or illness after the fact, and to have this kind of atomized approach to medicine where individuals are treated through by committee and the committees aren't communicating with each other, not talking to each other, and patients get lost in the shuffle and you know fall through the cracks. So we see that all, all the time, case after case. And that, that you know, the evidence supports that because that's where medical errors happen is through patient handoffs, through poor communication, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you could find that. But then if you don't have the broken medical system, and of course, the advantage of that argument is that almost everybody in America believes, and it also happens to be true. So it's got those two advantages going for it. And it's not a hard sell to the jury. They, they come in predisposed to believing maybe they like their own doctor or maybe they don't, but they think overall the medical system is deeply flawed and that people generally don't get really good medical care in this country. Yeah. And they think the reason for it is because corporations and insurance companies run the system for their own benefit at the expense of patients and honestly at the expense of doctors. So that's why a lot of doctors have a, you know are dissatisfied with the system. And to some extent, they're victims of a bad system too. So if you have the individual doctor case, maybe that comes into it. But then if you don't have any of those themes, but you almost always do, you almost always have the theme of, well, this bad thing did happen and they are responsible for it. And yet they refuse to acknowledge that. They refuse to take accountability and they go to enormous lengths to confuse to distract, to blame everything but accept, right? And then you can get that sort of indignation and and a little bit more heavy-handed with like their experts, for example. Yeah. And you can turn the case into a system failure where innocent patients are wronged, but rather than take responsibility, which also translates into acknowledgement of, of a problem and fixing it, Instead, they hire experts that are disingenuous, that are dangerous, that are hypocrites, that are that don't do their homework and express opinions based on flawed facts and lack of diligence. All of the things, of course, that they did to cause the problem to begin with. And then the case becomes about that as much as about the underlying breakdown in the system of medical care that led to the injury as well. So that in that sense, it's almost like the system failure is the, the machine that gets revved up to defend somebody whose actions, you know, clearly were below the standard of care and cause harm, but it's just the not take responsibility, not pay for the window you broke system that that's in place and that that's broken in our justice system kind of idea. Is that kind of in the realm of what you're talking about? Correct. And what I've learned in part from uh, talking to many lawyers through the podcast is that I was skeptical when I was a younger lawyer that that theme was as resonant as the theme of the broken medical system or the other issues that contributed to causing the harm. Because there's a way in which you'd think jurors might be more concerned about failure to train doctors properly or to hire adequate number of staff or to order the right tests or whatever it is, right? Because when they go to the hospital, they might 
have that same thing happen to them, and that's a concern. However, I think the data supports, and certainly anecdotally from other lawyers that I've talked to and interviewed, that the tactical decision-making and tone-deaf approach to handling the claims is equally effective. Right. And between that or the system failure in the medical system itself, you will always have issues that you can utilize. So it's identifying the most powerful ones and, and framing that for your case. I think that's a really interesting way to think about the, you know, on its face, the individualized doctor claim. It isn't just that, because if your claim is righteous, you know, which hopefully it is, that's why you took it, you believe in it. And I was just talking with a, a great med, a local med mal lawyer, Vic Perbanic, yesterday, and uh, just talking about the concept of like, as a starting point, like you got to believe like you are right. You know, if there's any real doubt that you're like questioning, oh, geez, you know, is this claim even fully legitimate? That's going to make it almost insurmountable to win. But assuming that we really do believe in this claim against a doctor who we know made a true error, but now is, is trying to escape any responsibility and rewrite history and so forth. Yeah, focusing on the system that gets behind them to to support, you know, for lack of a better term, a lie or a history that it isn't accurate. Uh, so that's an interesting way to think about it. I'm going to try to imagine that because I could see that happening in this case that we have coming up. It's against just a doctor. And my partner and I are taking over a case that was filed by others, but I think it's a very legitimate case, but still on its face just looks like doctor kind of had a legitimate reason not to come in and see a patient and really should have. But if it's just error in judgment, probably going to lose the case all the time unless we can really show that they knew better. And I think we actually have, I think we have things there. One thing in, in uh, John Burroughs' presentation, and for your listeners who may not know who he is, he's a, he, John is a guy who spent 30 or 40 years in, in the medical field. He was an emergency department doctor, and then he left to do healthcare management. And then for the last decade or so, he's been an expert witness in medical fraud and um, medical malpractice cases around the country. And at the ripe young age of 70, he is now uh, a law graduate and wants to start practicing law and he's working with our firm. And so it's a, it's a nice relationship because he brings a lot of expertise and knowledge about medicine and also systems in medicine. And and we're helping him learn the craft of uh, how to be a lawyer. But one of the things John would say if he were on this podcast is that part of the setup of a system in medicine is that you have to anticipate the kind of mistakes or problems that are going to happen. And you have to plan for them and, and plan to avoid them. So if, for example, if the case involves a doctor who's, let's say, on call and they're paged and they don't come in, if you have a system where that's left to the individual judgment and discretion of doctors, then you're always going to have a scenario where they make the wrong decision and a poor judgment call, so to speak, and, and a patient will be harmed as a result. So you can't really have a system where it's up to the doctor to decide under what circumstances are they going to come in if there's a scenario where the doctor is needed because there's an issue that places their patients at risk. The hospital or the medical employer should not tolerate that kind of system. Where it's it's literally just, yeah, because that's eerily on point with this case we're trying in January. I mean, you're at a cocktail party and you just don't feel like coming in. Right. Is that okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, so there should be standards for that. Even if there aren't written standards, there should be a culture. There should be expectation. And if you don't have that, then you're just allowing individual arbitrary conduct to affect the lives of your patients. And that's not how any other industry like this, that where people's lives are at stake would be managed, right? You don't, it's not like up to the airline pilot, whether they put the flaps up at 30 degrees and six kilometers of the runway. It's not like, do they feel like doing that now or do they not feel like doing that? Or if there's like a an issue that comes on that's unexpected, do they communicate that information to the co-pilot and, and troubleshoot or do they report that back to the control tower? Th those things aren't optional. They're not discretionary. There's systems for that because 
you build in the possibility that if you leave it to one person's individual judgment and discretion, that that puts people's lives at risk. Yeah. Someone could just be tired. They could be having a bad day. They could be intoxicated. I don't, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's what John would say to that. And there's entire organizations and writings and analysis that, that supports this. It's not just like one person's point of view, but this is the how you develop a system that minimizes harm to patients. Yeah, that's uh, dead on. And, and I think always in these on-call situations, which is exactly the scenario we have in our case coming up, that doctor is going to have incomplete information. So you're going to have, just by its very nature, a communication breakdown almost every single time, which is certainly what happened here. Didn't have all the information, thought, eh, it's probably not that condition. Turns out it was that condition and patient you know, was delayed in getting the treatment they need. Let me, yeah, we're getting close to the hour. And so I, and I really appreciate the time that uh, you've given to me today. So just because I, when I was listening to the podcast, because I, am fascinated by these big data studies and the way they can conceivably be in. And, and for me, I feel like I've had so many cases where I settled them for what I perceived to be a very good amount of money, but, and I'd done qualitative small focus group studies, which are not at all helpful for assessing the potential value of the case. But I've always been very worried that oh, maybe we should have tried that case or we should have gone further into trial to get more money because that wasn't actually the true intrinsic value and that these big data studies can maybe give us that insight. And I guess my question for you is that with your utilization with them, and I don't know how many you've done, but certainly you've done a few since you've talked about them on the Elevate podcast, how much, I guess, weight do you give the big data study once you get it? You know, you've done all your studies. I mean, because it's really only as good as the data and the way that you've framed everything. Okay, but you get it back and, and whatever your percentage win chance is and the amount, how much weight do you put on, on that as far as guiding, telling the client, no, stay the course, let us try this case, let us keep going versus not? So it's it's a tool like every other tool. And I don't think it can be used to the exclusion of all of the other methods that we've used historically, our own judgment, our experience, you know, uh, roundtabling it with colleagues and, and the like. But I think it's a very powerful tool that has the ability to some extent add some level of objectivity in a field that is, uh, you know, notoriously subjective and speculative. You know, I mean, in terms of what's the first thing your every client asks you after you do your intake meeting, they want to know, well, how long is this going to take and what is the value of my case? And if they don't ask then, they'll ask you later, certainly at mediation. And to some extent, when we answer that, we're just making it up. Right. And the value of the big data is you don't have to just make it up. You have some tool that answers that question for you, not perfectly, but in a way that is at least somewhat objective. And so for me, I mean, we really do put enormous weight on it. If there's a case that tells us that the case has a sort of median value of a certain amount, we will not recommend to our client that they take less than that to settle their case. And if the numbers are less than that, we recommend that they try the case. Yeah. I mean, then you have to build in the client's own preferences and their tolerance for risk. And there can come a point where the number even if the data says that the number would be better at trial, the number's good enough to meet their needs and they want their case settled, of course, we will honor their decision. But it's a great tool also for communicating with clients. We share the data study with our clients because we want them to have full transparency. And then we have a really, it allows for a really informed discussion with them about the risks and benefits in a way that I just don't feel like we could do without that. But you're you're completely right. It's it's also a garbage in, garbage out situation. So if you're not willing to invest the time to really create the case presentations strongly for each side, or you don't know some of the information because you're not through discovery yet, or you haven't taken critical depositions or experts, then you might be missing something that would have an enormous impact on the outcome. So the data wouldn't be that predictive. Yeah, I think 
I personally am like you that when I get them, I put a lot of weight on it because I'm like, well, what else did I do this for? If I'm not, this is supposed to be, you know, statistically significant. And I can tell you anecdotally that, and I think John actually uh, mentioned it on um, maybe the, uh, John Campbell, when you interviewed him, he did one for me. It was actually during the pandemic and they predicted the verdict would be 10.8 million and the verdict was 10.8 million, which was particularly insane because in Pennsylvania, we're in a jurisdiction where I can't ask for an amount for the non-economic damages. And yet they still pegged it like almost to the dollar on what we got. But I think on the flip side, I'm sure you've had those cases where if you just presented the facts of the case, you know, maybe your win rate's 40, 50%, but something unforeseen happened at trial. There was a, one of those magic moments. There was a huge impeachment or the defense made a, just a massive tactical error that crushes their credibility. And now that jury's more likely to find in your favor for reasons that never could have been baked into your data study. And that's the thing that always gives me pause. And maybe the answer is, well, in those cases, your win percentage was low, so you got stuck trying. They just had to hope for a magic moment. But I don't know. I just, I guess that's my question. If you get a case back and 65% the number, you know, and apparently above 70% now is the, the big threshold for confidence rate of winning. What do you do with that? How much weight do you put into it then kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it definitely doesn't take the thought process out of this job. It's just one additional tool to use. I mean, a lot of what we use it for is not just predicting values, but it's how to frame our case. It's, yeah. I, I find, and, and who we want on our jury. So we're as interested in those findings as we are in kind of the full value. But I do find it's very useful for, for instance, we judicial settlement conferences with federal, you know, federal judge in a case and sent them over the data study. And we said, Hey, this is what our data says the case is worth. This is why we're doing what we're doing. I don't know if it's right, but it's 450 people that are not lawyers and judges and their opinions are probably much more uh, indicative of what a real jury is going to do. So the median number there is the minimum we would take to settle the case. If you get us a number above that, we'll probably recommend to our client that we take it. If you can't, we won't. Yeah. Get some off your back for being irrational, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a good way to tell the judge or the mediator, give them a rationale for why you're, you have a certain position. And in that particular case, I think the number was about double what anybody in our state would have thought the case was worth and certainly what the judge thought it was worth. But we got the number. Yeah. And I think we got it partially because we had a rationale for it that was kind of unimpeachable. And also I mean, you the, believed the defense it. hadn't done a data study. Right. So, and you believed in it. And I mean, it's like, you're not you like questioning it. it. Right. Last point on that. And then we'll wrap up. Do you, have you gotten to the point where you're sharing the data studies with the defense as part of the settlement process? Generally, we do not do that, but strategically in certain cases we might, the most I would ever share is just the top line findings. I would never share the the more detailed analysis. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. There have been cases where we've shared the top line findings. I mean, in that prostate cancer case, we shared it pre-trial and didn't really move the needle, but then probably set us up for the number they would, they ultimately paid us after a ways into the trial. So yeah, it's just kind of a on a case by case basis, maybe we would share it or not. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm super fascinated and uh, really planning to go a lot more all in with those studies and the way it's going to guide whether we, you know, try some of these cases versus settle and how we approach the settlement discussions and so forth. So I'm pretty, I'm super excited about that. So anyway, Ben, uh, we have hit about a little more than the hour mark, and I've taken up a ton of your time, and I've gotten a ton out of this. I really appreciate you uh, talking. Uh, to me on this podcast, especially after uh, having just flown back from Europe and everything. And yeah, just super valuable. And thanks again for your podcast, uh, Elevate. I've been for a long time telling everybody to listen to it because there's just so much good stuff that comes out of that. Just also just listening to the way people think and talk. And I've gotten just a ton out of that podcast. So I hope you guys just keep uh, well, we'll forging have to have forward. <laughs> yeah, my next big verdict, I'll tell you. Let me, let me, uh, we'll get, get you on there. That would be great. About. It's awesome, though. But keep doing it because it's awesome. And uh, I just, uh, I love it. And again, thanks so much for, for doing this. And we'll tie it all up uh, with a bow. And again, apologizing for uh, my critiques of your evil man uh, argument. So.
(laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thanks a lot, man. Oh, great. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.